This is the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Daniel Cognetti. Welcome back to another episode of the AOS Career Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Cognetti. We are back for part two of the coding series with Shannon DeConda. Shannon, thank you so much for all you do for the AOS and teaching us about billing and coding. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you and happy to be here. Some nuances for a lot of the residents listening. Residents get very little education on coding. And there's always this contention about how do we bill for residents when the attending isn't there? How should residents be billing? So let's say theoretically that a resident sees a patient in the emergency department at two in the morning, the attending's not around, and they do a procedure like a close reduction, which has a significant number of RVUs associated with it. How should an attending or the resident be billing for that service? Can they bill for that close reduction right there under the attending, or should it be billed by the attending later on? Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So in order for teaching physician guidelines to be met, the attending must have a face-to-face visit with the patient. So if the attending is not having a deliverable face-to-face, technically that service is not reportable under the attending. It doesn't meet the definitions according to CMS, and that's what we use as our benchmark. It doesn't meet those definitions of reimbursable under the teaching physician guidance. That's why it's so imperative that we have an attending see those patients immediately or within the same visit as the residents. Now, that being said, there are primary exception areas, but as an orthopedist, you probably won't be working in primary exception areas. Those are clinics that are designated as we typically see primary care patients, so our attendings can see these patients up to this level of service, and they don't have to have an attending seeing the patients with them. But yeah, so that's very problematic. We really have to have the attending seeing the patient with the resident or within that same encounter time. Interesting. So if you can clarify for us, what should you do so the attending doesn't see them, they do that close reduction, what should the attending do at that first follow-up visit? Because they're technically treating a closed treatment, they're managing that patient and they have multiple visits going forward. Are they allowed to code for that closed treatment once they see the patient or are they not allowed to? That's a great question. And that kind of goes to a, and I hate to throw this word around, but a code integrity question meaning what is the integrity of the code? Not your integrity, but the coding integrity. And what a closed fracture care code says is it says we're closing the fracture. So when the attending comes in to see that patient, I assume the attending is then doing a follow-up visit with the patient because the fracture's already been closed. So technically, they can't bill closed fracture care because it's already been done. That clarifies it for me for when I have some residents doing some stuff overnight and I have patients following up in my clinic. Inpatient coding is another thing that's a little bit of a black box. Residents frequently, we, when we're in clinic, will code for our own visits with the attending there and they'll coach us through it and give us some tips and tricks. But 
inpatient coding tends to be a little bit different. We don't necessarily always see that going on. So I'm just wondering, how does coding work for, let's say, daily progress notes on patients? Obviously, post-op patients are a little bit different, but let's say it's someone you haven't operated on, but you're seeing them on a daily basis. How should residents be coding if they're attending rounds with them? Uh, just want to get your thoughts on that. The key there, again, goes back to the documentation and what's included in the documentation. But what we want to make sure of in any situation is the progress note is including why you're walking into the room with the patient, the description of the patient, and then, of course, the assessment and plan specific to what you're addressing with the patient. One of the problems we typically see in the inpatient setting is providers, first of all, copy and paste violations in the inpatient setting run amok. But on top of that, what we a lot of times see is the orthopedist including a lot of the assessment and treatment that the hospitalist is doing or vice versa. Now, a hospital group is always going to tell you, document everything, document all the diagnoses. I want to let you know that's fine. But when we're assigning your ENM level, we are only allowed to consider for your ENM the problems you have addressed in the documentation. So if the problem hasn't been addressed, we can't allocate that. So let's go back. You mentioned earlier, like diabetes. If you have a patient who's in the hospital, maybe they're in there because they hip fracture previously, they fell again, and you're monitoring them. So it's not post-op like you mentioned, but they also have diabetes. And you put diabetes as the third diagnosis on your note. If you don't talk about diabetes and how it's impacting your treatment plan, then the diabetes will not be considered as a complexity to that patient encounter. If you want it to be considered for complexity, then you must talk about it. Just like the thought process goes on in your head, it has to go on in the paper as well in order for us to add that level of complexity to your level of service. Most of your follow-ups are going to be a level three is a patient that you're trying to get them into some type of a stabilized state. They're more of a high-complexity patient. A level two are those patients, they're not stable yet, but they're still not that high acuity. And our level ones are, okay, we've reached a stabilized state, but we're just not ready to release you yet. We need to continue monitoring you. Now, that's not a hard, fast rule, but that's just kind of a glaze over of the difference between a level three, two, and one. Sure. That's really helpful. One other thing too is maybe for the younger surgeons who are getting an advanced practice provider on their team, I know that there's some difference maybe between how billing for uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners works in the hospital versus in a practice setting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So actually, they do work different everywhere, but the thing I want to touch on most is what we consider incident to and split shared services. So incident two services is when we have a nurse practitioner or a PA who works for the practice. By the way, they have to be employed with the practice, even through contract, that's fine, but they have to be employed. So they're employed with the practice. And if we bill them, we credential them and we bill them direct to the insurance company, we get 85% of the fee schedule 
And that's because they're a mid-level. They're not a full MD or DO. That's why we get 85% of the fee schedule. If we bill them under a billing provision called incident to or split shared services, instead of that 85%, we're able to still capture that 100% of the revenue. That's because we're actually billing that patient under the MD or DO's billing information to the insurance carrier. Now, in order to do that, there are a lot of complex rules that have to be met. Hospital is the only place where you can do split shared unless you're part of a health system. And then even if you're part of a health system, there's other rules and requirements in the clinic in order to be able to do split shared. But split shared is exactly what it sounds like. You are splitting or sharing the work of the encounter with your mid-level. Incident two is replacement. It's not sharing, it's replacement. So my mid-level has their own schedule. They're seeing their own patients. I, as the MD or DO, are not going in the room with the patients. They operate autonomously, but I am here. And the reason you get 100% of the fee schedule on those patients is the MD or DO created the treatment plan that is being followed by the mid-level. That's why the mid-level under incident two cannot see new patients. And if that treatment plan changes at all, we no longer support incident two services. Mid-levels can see new patients and they can create treatment plans, but under incident two provisions, in order to capture 100% of that fee schedule, they have to maintain the treatment plan that was created by the MD or DO. So I hope that at least gives a little bit of a road path and a quick five-minute little segment there. Yeah, that's super insightful because I really had no idea about that. And obviously, as people get out of residency, they're looking to hire individuals. They need to know how to properly utilize them, obviously fit them into their practice and make sure that they're financially getting everything out that they can of their relationship with that mid-level. Absolutely. And they all have to be credentialed. Even if you're going to build them incident two, they still have to be credentialed. That's a very big misnomer. People think, well, if I build them under me, I don't have to credential them with the insurance company. That's not true. You still have to credential them, especially with Medicare. So please keep that in mind. Let's hit on some of the biggest coding mistakes that you see on a regular basis? Are there a couple that you can just hit on and you just want to slap us over the wrist with a ruler? What are they? I have to tell you the biggest one is 25 modifier. So 25 modifier is when we bill an E&M with an office-based procedure on the same day. And the rules are very specific on when you're allowed to and when you're not. And furthermore, our rules actually say that the instances of when you should be doing that are, their words, rare. So if you're billing 25 modifier excessively, you should stop and ask yourself, am I using the modifier correctly? So our goal, by the way, at least where I come from at my work, we are provider advocates. We want to help you understand the right way to use things. Our cautions are not stop doing it, don't do it. It's do it smart and know you're supporting the service. 
So I don't want you to leave and stop using 25 modifier. I want you to understand 25 modifier, according to the guideline says, if you're doing the procedure, the decision to perform that procedure is inherent work of the procedure. Now we all know that's not true, but that's the billing rule. I told you there's the coding rule and then there's the reimbursement policy. That's reimbursement policy and there's no way around it. You talked about being a new provider. Being a new provider, when you sign that PAR agreement of I wanna be in network with your insurance company, you agree to those reimbursement policies. And that reimbursement policy says, when we pay you to do a 20610 major joint injection, we paid you for the decision inside of the 20610. Now, if you want to bill an E&M with the 20610, then something else better be documented in conjunction with it. So for example, we're injecting the shoulder today. I would expect that there's a 25 modifier in an E&M code that when I read that E&M, you're going to have had another problem somewhere else on that patient that day, or you also address the other shoulder and treated it as a separate problem because I'm gonna tell you a lot of orthopedists make this mistake. We have bilateral joints, we have bilateral extremities, but when you document them as one, we have one problem. Make sure you're addressing them as two. I'm sure every time you take a patient to surgery to do a shoulder repair, you don't automatically do shoulder repair on both. So don't document it that way treat them as the separate problems they really are even in your documentation. So with the 25 modifier, that's one of the places we see a lot of errors and I have to tell you, so do the carriers. And we see a lot of audits come down from the carriers on 25 modifier. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I had never heard about the decision to give the injection is already included in that code. So yeah, people would say sometimes if you make the decision to do an injection on a shoulder during that visit and you give them the injection, you can put the 25 modifier, but it's like you're saying, that's not true. You have to have some other problem that you're addressing most likely. Yes, that is true. That's a great one. You have any other ones for us? So 59 modifier, the same thing. Most of the time, are smack on your hands are going to come from use of modifiers and not enough documentation or i shouldn't say not enough documentation because let me tell you there's some notes out there that are eight pages that tell us nothing the meat in the documentation that's what we're looking for really getting down to what's going on with this patient i actually did a training session different specialty but for some physicians last night they are still dictating their notes. Do you know how long it's been since I've seen a dictated note? But what made it refreshing was when I looked at their notes before a training session last night, I could really see why the patients were there. I could see the multiple problems they were taking care of. Each multiple problem was addressed appropriately in the documentation. It makes me realize that prior to EMR, we really were getting better documentation from providers. EMR has made it slip somewhat because we're reliant on copy, paste, templates, macros. And let me tell you, I am too, because I'm going to tell you when I do a lot of the functions I do for our company, I copy, I paste, I use macros and templates. We all do in everything we do. 
but it does lose that patient individuality that is needed to support medical necessity. Modifiers, we have to have documentation to validate modifiers. And like I said, 59 is saying, I did these two services for a separate reason, and we have providers wanting to use those 59 modifiers, especially with like shoulder surgeries. But if the documentation doesn't show that you did it for separate reasons, we don't have the justification to put on a 59 modifier. And we can't just put modifiers on things to pass it through billing edits. That's every definition of fraud. That's billing for reimbursement. So we have to make sure that we can support what we're actually putting on that claim form to obtain reimbursement. This wraps up our second part of our billing and coding podcast with Shannon. Shannon, again, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure having you. And I think people are really going to find a lot of value in both parts of these. I know I sure learned a lot. Thank you. I just want to refer everybody if they have any other further questions about coding or billing to go to the AOS coding community online. They can also refer to the AOS Codex app, which is a valuable resource for looking up CPT codes and RVUs. And obviously, Shannon is always available to help out and lend her insights. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And if anybody needs any help, please always reach out. Always happy to help answer questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other conversations on professional development, please visit aos.org backslash the Bone Beat career.